Before we start today's show, a warning that some of the audio in this episode could be difficult to listen to. So please keep that in mind as you decide when and with whom you listen. Wednesday morning, my colleagues and I were invited to embed with a battalion called Dnipro 1 that has several key positions set up in the towns close to the front line. We arrived and the scene was rather calm. There were about five or six soldiers who were sitting around looking pretty relaxed. Siobhan O'Grady is a foreign correspondent for The Post. Earlier on in the war, Siobhan reported from Kyiv, a main target of Russian aggression. But now the fighting has shifted elsewhere, to the Donbass region in the east. And it was there she met these soldiers. At first, they were just waiting. They had dug trenches into this area. It was a wooded area. And they had dug trenches and were showing us around the position. My colleague Nastya Khalushka and I were standing on top of a small hill next to the trench to see more of the position. We heard the boom of an incoming artillery. It's a different kind of boom that you hear when it's coming from the Russian side. And immediately after, we heard this whistle, which signals that a shell is going to land. Oh my God, where do we go? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi, in for Martin Powers. It's Thursday, June 2nd. Today, we take you to the eastern front of the Ukraine war, where Russia has refocused its attacks. Later in the show, we go to western Ukraine, where refugees have found safety, but not a return to normal life. First, in the east, Russians are strengthening their hold over large cities, Ukrainian troops are struggling, and more and more people are fleeing from bombing. Shells are very dangerous because what they do is they explode and send shrapnel flying all around in different directions. Shrapnel wounds are actually what is causing most of the deaths and injuries on the front line right now because Russian forces are using artillery to bombard the Ukrainian forces absolutely nonstop. So hearing the sound of that whistle was a pretty frightening moment because we knew that if we could hear it, then it was about to land somewhere close by. Where? In here, to the right. The soldiers we were with started screaming at us to move. We had just arrived to the position a few minutes earlier, and luckily the first thing that they had done was show us the kind of makeshift shelter that they had built, which looked a bit like a hobbit hole. Um, it was a hole dug into the ground and kind of propped up with different pieces of wood and pallets. And, you know, you could sit or kind of crouch inside. It was a little bit low to stand up entirely, but it's a space that they carved out to try to avoid being hit by shrapnel. And so we're all pushed kind of through the trench and basically forced into this tiny bomb shelter um, where other soldiers also huddled around. And then it was quiet for a minute. 150 meters. That's how far it was? That's where it was, just over there. So we tried to, to go out to the car quickly to leave the position because we'd gotten the all clear. When we were about to leave, we heard another 
whistle come in and then another. And more shells landed outside. So at that point, uh, we were really coming under semi-serious shelling and we decided to just stay put until we were completely sure that the attack was over. 15 minutes waiting time. This is ongoing. The shells did land about 150 meters from us, which is a bit close for comfort, and luckily nobody was wounded. At the beginning of the war, the Russian forces had much larger ambitions to really take over all of Ukraine, essentially. And they were trying their advance on Kyiv, which was widely covered. And that is the area where they really wreaked havoc on civilian populations, including in Bucha and Irpin and other places, the names of which have become synonymous with the loss of life that Russia has inflicted upon Ukraine since the beginning of the conflict. But now, in recent weeks, after really failing to take Kyiv, they retreated and have instead amassed huge amount of military support and strength around the country's east. And it seems like their ambitions have changed and that they're more focused now on trying to seize the Donbass region. And this means that the people who are living here and the soldiers who are fighting here are coming under a huge amount of pressure because the the sheer number of troops that the Russians are now throwing at the fight really doesn't compare to how they were operating at the beginning of the war. And at the beginning of the war, we also saw a lot of mistakes and um, kind of strange behavior by Russian troops. It seemed as though uh, they were a bit disorganized. They didn't seem to know exactly what they were doing or what their objectives were. We're now seeing a much more organized approach from the Russians in which they are intensely shelling towns in this region, essentially forcing civilians to flee or go underground. Uh, They're also targeting troops with the shelling, which is causing a huge number of injuries and deaths on the Ukrainian side. And then once the cities have been significantly damaged, they basically move in and start taking over these areas. This week, Ukraine got word that more help is on the way. On Tuesday, the Biden administration said it was sending $700 million worth of military equipment to Ukraine, including medium-range advanced rocket systems. But according to the Pentagon, it's still going to take about three weeks before Ukrainian troops will be fully trained to use them. The United States agreed this week to transfer four high-mobility rocket artillery systems to Ukraine. Ukraine has been begging for further aid from the West in recent weeks and warning that any delay could really cause significant losses on the battlefield. On Thursday, President Zelensky told Luxembourg's parliament in an address that around 20% of the country is now controlled by Russia. This signals massive loss of territory since February 24th when Russia invaded. And it is very concerning to people living in the East where the fight is right on their doorstep. People are continuing to have to flee every single day. And others don't have that choice because it's very expensive to live outside of this region. A lot of people here are not wealthy and they don't feel like they have options in terms of anywhere to flee. Basically, all of the troops that I've spoken to have expressed that they have no intention whatsoever to strike inside Russia with any advanced rocket systems, but that they need these systems that the U.S. is sending because they're currently on the back foot in this region, and they have been unable to preemptively strike Russian targets, according to top commanders that we've spoken to in recent days. 
because the they're positioned far enough away that they are comfortably attacking Ukrainian positions with their own advanced systems and artillery, and the Ukrainian side can't get that same distance. It's clear that people are getting tired. I mean, a lot of soldiers here even acknowledge to me that it's tiring. Um, it does feel like there's just no chance for a break here. And this constant threat of artillery from an enemy that you can't see is really scary. You know, trying to sleep or rest in a trench when you might get pounded um, with artillery at any moment with only a few seconds notice is something that is really, really scary to deal with on a daily basis and traumatizing, especially over a long period of time. Siobhan O'Grady is a foreign correspondent for The Post. On Thursday, Siobhan, Post photographer Heidi Levine, and Ukrainian journalist Nastia Halushka came under intense shelling again in the Donbass region. After the break, we hear from a teenager named Anna, who's ended up in this strange limbo of Western Ukraine. The Post's Hannah Alam met her a couple of months ago at a train station and learned how she's coping with all the change. We'll be right back. Last month, reporter Hannah Alam set up at a train station in Lviv, this charming tourist town in western Ukraine that's been transformed by the war into a hump for displaced people. That's where she met 16-year-old Anna Melnik. I met Anna the same way that most people meet her in Lviv, which is by going up to her at the information desk at the train station and asking her a question. Anna was wearing a green vest with the word information on it. And for a while, Hannah watched her, directing angry, bewildered, scared people to their next destinations, telling them where to go if they needed help, where the nearest bomb shelter was located. So I was just one among a stream of adults who approached her that day asking a question, and that was really sort of the uh, seed of the story. Hannah talked to Martine about what else she saw. So here's my photos of my friends it's, uh, and letters. It's one of the most important things. It's my best friend, Nazar. He's my classmate. So let's go back a little bit to before the war. Who is Anna and what was her life like uh, previous to a few months ago? Anna Melnik is a 16-year-old girl from Kyiv who, until February 24th, was pretty much a typical 10th grader. Like uh, another typical uh, teenager, I have school. I have school. I uh, woke up at uh, even, uh, 8 o'clock, uh, went to school, just uh, do all my best there, meet my friends. Uh, she had a fairly comfortable middle-class family, a professional family. Her mother is an interpreter for Italian companies. Her grandma is an eye doctor. 
She's got a stepdad she's very close to and her dog, Venya. She loves Marvel comics and would complain about her physics teacher. And, you know, she's she's just a teenager. We had some troubles uh, with, uh, sometimes with teachers, sometimes with friends. Uh, um, maybe I had a bad mark sometimes uh, and it was uh, my the biggest problem. And then really the change for her was so abrupt. And I, I thought that one way that was really telling was just scrolling through the camera roll on her phone. And so it's like, there's Anna posing with her friends, throwing up the peace sign, you know, taking selfies. And then in the next frame, it's Russian helicopters flying outside her window. It was the first time I saw helicopters so we, and they were shooted because we live uh, near like Bucha, Vostomer, and then Vipetrivti, it's where we lived. And uh, we saw it, we heard it, uh, and it wasn't uh, a best experience in my life. So it really was a very distinct and abrupt before and after for her. And tell me about what those days were like when, when the war first broke out. Well, so she said, you know, yeah, we heard rumblings that of war with Russia. You know, we'd hear Putin and Donetsk and Lugansk and, you know, all these words and places. But, you know, that was kind of adults talking and my life was kind of uninterrupted. That's, you know, what she would, was saying. And so, but it wasn't like you're thinking about Russia every no, day. No. Or but, something. you know, uh, the months before, uh, the people started to talk about Oh, you need to take a package with documents or money. But uh, till the end, I thought it's like fake information and I believed all my heart it's fake. Because uh, no one will believe when you say it's uh, going to be war tomorrow and you're like, no, you're kidding me. But uh, it happened. And then on February 23rd, the day before Russia invades, she and her friends chip in together and they buy this chocolate birthday cake for their favorite teacher and they are ready to party the next day. And instead, that next morning, she wakes up because her mother comes into the room after there's been this sounds of explosions. And she says, you know... And told Anuta, wake up, just calm without panic and uh, take your... Uh, clothes, take your stuff, what you will need for a couple of uh, weeks, we thought, like that. And uh, we have to, to leave. We don't know yet where to go. Now we will go to our granny, we will take her, because she's alone and we can, we can <laughs> leave her alone there. And then we will decide where to go. And that was sort of the end of uh, normal life as she knew it. And what, what was her response? What was her reaction? Okay, no, it's okay. She thought, okay, mom, but we, uh, we made a cake to our, for our teacher. What shall we do? I said, don't worry. We will take uh, this cake with us and we will make a tea. <laughs> and we started. Really, we write to my mom. We made tea, coffee. We opened this uh, cake and we started to celebrate, li celebrate life. Leheim! <laughs> So off they go with the cake and the dog to her grandmother's house in the suburbs, uh, suburbs of Kiev. And tell me about how her life started to change from there and, and, and how they, um, the decisions that they made after that. So they get to the grandmother's home and they think, okay, we'll be safe here. But the grandmother's home is about 10 miles from Bucha, 
this uh, suburb of Kiev that has become synonymous with some of the worst sort of atrocities, devastation, bloodshed of the war. And this was within earshot for them. So they're hearing all of this devastation going on just miles away. And by that time, they don't even know where the sort of Russian forces are. Are they close? Are they in the woods? Are they around us? Are they coming? And so they were very nervous to leave. And then the photos emerged from Bucha, the first photos that showed these, you know, just really stomach-churning scenes of, of atrocities and devastation and killings. And they said, you know, basically, we see what's coming and we need to get out of here. And so they consulted with their pastor. They found some back roads out, you know, but they still were, were really scared. And um, Anna's mom told me every day it was, go or stay, go or stay. What should we do? What should we do? Just this agonizing decision because they were hearing of people getting killed as they fled. And we prayed and we prayed. And after six uh, nights without uh, <laughs> sleeping, we understood that we can, we will die or without sleeping <laughs> or from Russians that we are, are going to come that are somewhere in this forest that are a couple of kilometers from us. And we have to try. Finally, one day, Anna just, you know, couldn't take it anymore. She locks herself in a closet, doesn't eat, won't talk to her parents, crying all day. Without, and they, and I knocked, I asked Anuta, come here, what is going on? And she cried there for one, one day and without even coming to us, without eating. And her mom and grandma told me, you know, that was really the moment we decided we've got to try for a future for this girl. We've got to get out of here. And we have to decide something that it is not stopping, as we thought. I just a little bit more and we will stop. A little bit more and it will stop. For sure it will stop. No, no, I thought it will not stop, right now at least. And we have to try to, to save my daughter, to save ourselves, my family. It's our responsibility. And we took a decision that we will try to leave. If we and pray to God to save us, to, to protect us and during this road, because we didn't know where are the forces, Russian, and what villages they occupied at that moment. And, uh, and they hit the road. And where did they decide to go? Basically, they were driving through these back roads toward the city of Lviv, where so many other displaced people have come and found shelter. And uh, they arrive, and I think they stayed at a friend's house for, for a little bit. And then, you know, they found this little two-room apartment where Anna lives with her mother, her grandmother, and the dog. And uh, her stepdad went back to Kiev. Why, why did he go back to Kiev? I think he had work. And also, a lot of the men are kind of dropping, you know, the family members here and going back to either work or help out in some way with the war effort, whether it's fighting or humanitarian assistance. Um, so that's a common story. You would hear, you see so much family separation. And how has Anna been handling all of this, especially the the fact that she's just 16? I mean, it. I, I can't imagine how much it is to try to process and come to terms with. I mean, it's pretty remarkable. She's extremely stoic. You know, I've been interviewing displaced people every day, people who've lost everything in an instant. And these are much older people who will break down. I'll break down sometimes. You know, these are really hard stories to hear. And these, these folks are living through this every single day. So 
I never saw her cry. And one day I I asked her after several days of hanging out with her, I said, you know, does it ever get to you? I, you seem so strong and stoic. And she, you know, she was like, I'm not a robot. <laughs> I do cry. And she said that, you know, what'll happen is it'll just build and build and build and she'll keep it inside. And then she said, something stupid will happen. I'll drop a book or break something and it'll just feel devastating. You know, it'll all sort of come out in that way. And so, yeah, I asked her mother, do you all talk to each other about this? And she said, no, she really keeps it all in. But I pray for her. I hope God talks to her. That's what uh, that's what our mom said. We pray. We pray all together. Maybe we, we don't talk, but we talk to God all together every day. In our prayers, we tell all this. We ask God to protect and to help all the people that are in the hardest situation. And we understand that we pass nothing in comparison with some people. We are grateful to God <laughs> that He saved us, that we are here and we, um, we think that we can be useful, that God is preparing us then to, to reconstruct Ukraine, not only physically, not buildings, not roads, but I mean hearts and lives of people. So how did Anna decide to start volunteering at the train station? And why do you think she did that? So when the mom and the grandmother and Anna, when they arrive in Lviv and they find this two-room flat, which, by the way, housing is very, very hard to find here now. Everything is full, the hotels, the shelters, the Airbnbs, everything. So they really sort of lucked out. They were among the lucky ones to find this tiny little flat. And so they were very grateful for having it, but it's still not home and it's still a traumatic war. The mother was was trembling all the time and, and crying. And, you know, she told me that she and the grandma spent a month, you know, indoors crying. And she said, but Anna, day three, she decided to go out volunteering. You know, it was within days she was connecting with her fellow displaced friends through social media and all these apps and they had found each other and, hey, we're, what are you doing? Well, I'm volunteering, come with us. And very soon, you know, within days, this girl who had been, you know, interested in comic books and Harry Styles or, you know, all all these sort of teenage concerns was weaving camouflage tank netting with other teenagers and was sorting clothes for refugees and was uh, assigned eventually to the train station where I met her, where every day she goes and she puts on this little green uniform, this little green vest that says information on it. And she is just sort of the first point of contact for this stream of anxious, tired, terrified people who are two, three, four times her age. I can help people who need it, that came from the hot spots. And they uh, just uh, came here and they don't know what to do next. And uh, I saw that faces and I remember a woman that uh, I gave her tea and she started to crying because uh, she asked me one more. She said like, uh, we are from Mariupol and we, uh, I'm my, I have a lot of children and uh, we were on the road for uh, long hours and it was a uh, really scared road. Can you give me please one more tea? It wasn't a problem for me, but uh, how people are reacted and they were so uh, thankful. 
and I saw it and it's really inspired when you see a little action can bring a lot of uh, things in future. You just uh, gave this tea to the woman and uh, you make her her day better. And uh, then uh, she will be more happy and uh, give this happiness to another people. It's like uh, a line. And uh, then it will be all over the Ukraine. And uh, this uh, spirit uh, will bring us uh, this uh, this victory, yeah. She said it makes her feel like she's doing something for her country, that it's a role for her in this. You know, she's not 18. She can't, you know, enlist in the military and, and take up arms. She She's not even old enough to drive. <laughs> you know, the, she's two years away from the driving age in Ukraine, which is 18. So... This was something she could do. It was also, I think, a way to take her mind off just the the daily misery of hearing these stories, being surrounded by people who are, um, you know, by just the, the idea that you yourself, you, she's displaced. She, her entire, you know, fortunes have been reversed. She has no idea what tomorrow will bring, but she can put on that uniform, show up to the train station and serve a purpose. And I mean, she is someone, she once told me a story. She is the kind of person who likes a mission and wants to be useful. And so she's obsessed with the um, TV detective series Castle. <laughs> and so she told me once that she used to dream that the detective would come to her in her dreams and say, okay, Anna, you're coming with us. You're on the <laughs> team. We need you to help crack this case, you know? Oh. You know, it was my favorite soap opera until now. I haven't even have uh, a dreams like uh, she came to my children garden like, oh, Anya, you will come with us to the police and you will be part of our uh, team. And I'm like, wake up. I should go to the children garden. But I like, mom, mom, I have so, so amazing dream. <laughs> And so she's just someone who kind of wants that sense of purpose and mission. And, you know, I I have a 15-year-old daughter and it's a weird age. It's awkward. You know, you're negotiating all these changes, these new freedoms, new responsibilities, and you're on this threshold of adulthood. And I think what the war has done has just pushed a generation of Ukrainian teenagers across that threshold really fast and really violently in many cases. And so it's actually quite remarkable to see how resilient and determined so many of them have been. Because yeah, you go to that train station, you go anywhere around the city where there are displaced people or humanitarian efforts going on, and you will see these fresh young faces of Ukrainian uh, teenagers and, and young people just right there doing doing the work of adults. How does Anna's mom feel about this job that she has in the train station? She worries about her a lot. She prays about her a lot. Her mom's pretty religious. These days, the news has been full of reports of Russia targeting railway stations, transit, you know, lines. And that's been a major target, that kind of infrastructure, transportation infrastructure. And not long after I met her, we had an airstrike 
here in Lviv, very close to the um, to the railway line. In fact, when we first heard about it, we thought it was the at the station. And so I was immediately texting Anna saying, are you okay? Are you okay? And she said, yes. You know, I don't think it was right at the station. Everybody's in the shelter. Everybody's fine. So, I mean, that was just within days of meeting her. She was already in this, in proximity to this terrible airstrike. It was a deadly strike, actually. And you know, I asked her mom about that and she said, you know, I I can't hold her back. You know, I told her growing up, be smart, be fearless, be resilient, go for it, you know, do your part for Ukraine. And she said, so how could I tell her no? Um, she said, we we just, we pray and we she walks out the door and, um, and we let her go. And Anuta... Um, is that person? Uh, she's not unique no, for us. She's unique, <laughs> but I mean, there are a lot of children, a lot of teenagers, Ukrainian, uh, like this, and maybe they are dangerous for Russian mentality. But uh, these people, these children, they have future, and for maybe for these <laughs> teenagers, we have future, and Ukraine has future. followed along with Anna for a few days. What was that like and what were a couple moments that stuck out to you of her her day-to-day life right now? So I I watched her sign on to Zoom school in the morning and, you know, she's there. She's very excited to see her old classmates and her old teachers and she even told me, you know, gosh, I used to complain about my teachers and I used to get a bad grade and say, life sucks. And she said, now, you know, what I wouldn't give to have that classroom back, what I wouldn't give to see my friends and and my teachers and even the physics teacher, you know. And, uh, you know, so to watch her kind of try to have that sort of normal classroom life and her eyes light up when she sees her friends on, on Zoom. And then Zoom is over and she'll grab a bite to eat. And then off she goes immediately, hops a bus by herself and goes across town, puts on her green vest and starts her shift at the train station. I did get a chance to hang out with her a couple days too, where it was just her and her girlfriends hanging out. And, you know, teen girls are the best. So it was just really fun to to be with them, to see that through all of these awful circumstances they're living through, all of these huge disproportionate responsibilities that are on their shoulders, they are still teenagers. Um, I watched them go to KFC and dip, you know, French fries and ice cream and they played the shooting game where they shot plastic pellets in Vladimir Putin's face. They, you know, <laughs> talked about music, laughed at memes on their phones. And sometimes they would they would discuss their fears or, you know, the fear of separation. They also write each other letters and give each other letters in case the next day one of them is going to leave and they won't get to say goodbye so they've written these like beautiful letters to each other that they tuck into their phone cases wow. as mementos. And um, so there were beautiful moments like that. But whenever any of them kind of starts, you know, talking about the war and 
their fears and what happens next. And, you know, it, it gets to be somber. One of them will say, Ukraine moment, and then they'll just start <laughs> laughing. Oh, my God. And it just kind of breaks the tension. Um, <laughs> so, so, yeah, they were, they were really fun to, to hang around. Did your time with Anna make you think differently about the war and the future of Ukraine? You know, in their eyes, in Anna's eyes, in the eyes of of her friends and other young Ukrainians I met while here, there is no path forward other than a free and independent Ukraine. They see a role in creating, nurturing, and defending that national project. And I, I mean, some of them were saying, you know, including Anna, you know, we dreamed of applying overseas. We we dreamed of going to the United States or to Europe, other parts of Europe, and to you know, to leave Ukraine. But now they have this strong sense of sort of Ukrainian identity and the necessity of staying here and building and defending Ukrainian independence, the Ukrainian nation. Because, you know, uh, in a lot of teens uh, woke up uh, in this uh, spirit to speak Ukrainian, to develop our country, not to leave it, uh, and how I said, develop the areas that near us. I asked her, you know, how do you think you've changed in these past two months? And she said, you know, I used to be mad if the pizza place closed early and I couldn't get my pizza that I wanted. And she said, now, you know, I've my old concerns are are put in perspective. I've got a new perspective on life. And, you know, it's in some ways it's sort of, she sounds very adult and grown up and has all these grown up concerns and talks about, you know, Ukrainian independence and what it means and, you know, the path forward and sort of politics and things like that. And then you'll see her around her mom and she'll, you know, roll her eyes, say she doesn't want to do dishes. And it's like, ah, oh, okay, she's still a teenager. <laughs> So, are, are, are you proud of her? Yes. Yes, yes. Well, how would you describe her to people who will only see her through, you know, these photos and her interview from a mom's perspective? How do you describe your daughter? What, what's she like? She loves life. She is so, she's so full of life. No, really, really. Sometimes when, because even me, like mom and granny, we try, we have to be... Um, an example, we have to be uh, strong to, to, to take her. <laughs> but uh, there were some times when I stayed here in, in, and just crying and without uh, even seeing the future the next day and what is going on and <laughs> how to live forward, how to go forward. And she, then she comes, she just looks, Mom, do you want me to hug you? <laughs> you understand? <laughs> Really. Because I tried not to show to her when I'm weak or maybe when I just can <laughs> when some things come over and she she's everything, she understands and maybe more than I see. <laughs> Hannah Alam covers national security for the post. Aaron Patrick O'Connor contributed to this story.
That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Alexis Diao, Emma Talkoff, and Rennie Svernofsky. It was mixed by Ted Muldoon and edited by Rina Flores and Alexis Diao. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.